This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. And I'm very honored to have today here with us Dr. Rohini Anand, who is currently Senior Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Advisor and former Senior Vice President of Corporate Responsibility and Global Chief Diversity Officer at Sodexo. Thank you so much for joining me here today, Rohini. I'm so happy to have you with us. Wonderful to be with you, Dr. Creary. Just really delighted to be part of this conversation. So what many people don't know is you and I actually know each other pretty well, and our (laughs) history goes back to uh, 2008. Uh, In 2008, I was both a research associate at Harvard Business School and also a research associate at the conference board in New York City, in New York uh, City, studying uh, companies' global uh, chief, uh, global diversity and inclusion strategies. And so you were somebody who had both been a presenter and an expert at the conference board, sharing with your colleagues some of the good work that you all were doing at Sodexo, particularly as you wanted to uh, think about um, broadening your scope from U.S. domestic-focused diversity strategies to global-focused strategies. But then also, um, you were somebody who uh, we had um, at the time, my, my, the professor I'd been working for, Professor David Thomas, who's now president of Morehouse College, we'd been doing a body of work that was focused on trying to understand how companies like yours were trying to scale these U.S. strategies more globally. And so one of the things that happened at that time and around the 2008-2009 period is we started interviewing you and many of your colleagues at Sodexo who had been doing some of the work um, in the U.S. and certainly were focused um, on the global strategy. But where I wanted to start today um, was to talk a little bit about uh, some of the early work that you did at Sodexo, because I think so much of that is related to uh, the, the experiences that many of us are having now, um, personally, in our, experience, in, in our companies around racial justice. Uh, but before we get there, I, I want to um, note to everybody that um, Rohini and her CEO and her company, they were kind enough to sign off on a, a wonderful Harvard Business School case study. It's called Shifting the Diversity Climate, Sodexo Solutions. So you can read more about the extensive work that Rohini and her colleagues did between the years of 1999 and 2010. We'll just preview a little bit of that here uh, before we lapse into a conversation about the current time. Sound good, Rohini? Sounds wonderful, Stephanie. Great. Okay. So let me take us back to around uh, early 2000, 2000, 2001. And at that time, Michelle Landell was president um, and CEO of Sodexo North America, correct? Right. Okay. Yes. And he had recently hired his, has he referred to his good friend, Ollie Lawrence, uh, uh-huh. to be Sodexo's North America Chief Human Resources Officer. And one of the things that really struck me when I had interviewed Michelle uh, way back when was he talked about this friendship that he had with Ollie Lawrence, who described himself as an African-American male. Uh, Michelle Landale was uh, was uh, Belgian, I believe. No, he's French. He's French. He is French. French my yeah. apologies. So Michelle Landale was French. And so he talked about some of his early learnings about racial equity and racial inequity came from this. Uh, friendship that he had with um, Ollie Lawrence. Um, And so it was really, for him, 
quite a, an emotional experience when in 2001, your company Sodexo um, was notified that a class action lawsuit had been filed in DC against Sodexo, which was called, then called Sodexo Marriott Services. So I'm gonna turn it over to you to talk a little bit about that um, time period for the company. And then you came in shortly thereafter. So can you give us a little bit of a, a, a reflection on what that felt like? I know we're reflecting back. Uh, 19 years, but certainly I'm sure it was a very uh, remarkable period in your career. Yeah, so I actually, thanks a lot. I think that's that context is actually wonderful and really very relevant to what's happening today in the world around us um, for multiple reasons. But I joined Sodexo in 2002, and about six months after I joined, the lawsuit was certified as a class action. And we ultimately did settle in 2005, and there was a five-year consent decree after that. But I would say that you know, it was a, a discrimination lawsuit filed by African-American managers. It was a promotion discrimination lawsuit. And that certainly was a very painful time in the company's history. But it was also a time of incredible learning, incredible growth. Um, and I think much of this had to do with the leadership, so with Michelle. And, you know, you're absolutely right. I think this, you know, so it was his sort of personal transformation that brought him to an understanding, somewhat of an understanding of race relations in the U.S. I don't think that he will or anyone will say that, you know, he fully understood it. But I will say that he began his journey and his friendship with Ollie. Um, and the experiences that Ollie shared, and then Michelle, you know, being the sort of humble leader that he is, was able to listen and to learn and to internalize some of those messages really helped in his growth. So, you know, Michelle actually grew up in, in um, he was born in Morocco. He lived in Africa for many years, was, you know, leading the business in Africa, but had a very, very different understanding of race outside of the United States. And I think that different understanding of race continues even today with what you know we see happening in Europe and France, et cetera. We can you know get more into that. But that particular time period, you know, I think was it was an opportunity, it provided a springboard, it was a burning platform. But I have to say that the organization could have just sort of stopped and said, let's do these 10 things that we're required to do and we're done with it. But I, I, along the way, I think that there were enough leaders, enough of a critical mass that had begun to sort of personally engage on the topic that they and, and reflect on the topic. And they actually helped to change the culture within Sodexo. So it was a transformation, a cultural transformation, a systemic change to the organization processes, policies, systems, individual behaviors and actions that ultimately impacted sort of this cultural transformation. And, you know, I mean, I suppose the proof is in the pudding in terms of, you know, the, what it is today in terms of representation, in terms of, you know, behaviors, in terms of, you know, what our surveys say about how African-American employees feel about being at Sodexo. But also the named plaintiff in that lawsuit continued to stay at Sodexo. 
And, you know, I mean, she says that I would not have if, if this, you know, culture had not changed, transformed the way it had. So, you know, I think it was it was difficult. But I do think that it positioned diversity, equity and inclusion in a way that became it became an enabler for the business, but also an enabler for changing the culture and the organization. And, you know, clearly it had to be led from the top. The leadership had to be completely committed. And it wasn't like they kind of, you know, suddenly woke up and understood what, you know, what the issues were or what the African-American employees were going through. It was a process. And, you know, I can talk a bit about that process, but it was a journey for each and every one of those leaders. So we'll get back to some of the specific uh, policies uh-huh. and, and systems right. that you put in place when I when we set ourselves in the current time, because I know so many individuals or leaders are interested in. So when we're talking about systemic racism, what do right. we mean by systems and how do we change it? So I'm going to give you the opportunity in a little bit to reflect on the, some of the specific two to three things you did. And then do, would you still do those things now? But before we go there. I want to actually bring up something else that I've been thinking about a lot lately. As I said, I've been thinking a lot about about your case as mm-hmm. I've been watching the world unfold around us, because I remember all of the work that it took for Sodexo and for you and Michelle to gain traction on talking about diversity in France, um, in getting people outside of the United States to believe that diversity was not just a U.S. thing, that it was something that was meaningful in their own culture. And so I will never forget uh, this idea that uh, for so many people around the world, um, when you tried to talk about diversity, it was that's a U.S. thing that's not necessarily our thing. And I look today, there are protests, Rohini, in France. There are protests in London. There are protests all around the world in many of these jurisdictions where I know you and your colleagues at other organizations had a very hard time um, getting them to believe that diversity affected them as well. So could you reflect a little bit on perhaps that journey, um, the work that you had to do, and maybe what you're thinking now as you're seeing all these countries embrace a Black Lives Matter movement and certainly making it their own with respect to their own cultures and ethnicities? Yeah, so I think that's, I mean, I think that's, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I, and you know, when we started this work, when we started the global work, you're right. It was incredibly challenging and particularly challenging in Europe where, you know, you, you're not allowed because of data privacy issues to collect data on race or ethnicity. But apart from that, the word diversity, the word, well, more so the word race or ethnicity does not translate within the context of many European countries where individuals are identified by their individual experiences, so as an immigrant or of a particular nationality, versus being identified by a collective identity as belonging to a particular ethnic group. So given that there's no data on representation of how many you know, Black people there are, for instance, in, an, in the organization, there is no acceptance around talking about these issues because they would you know say that this is a US issue we don't have race issues in this in our country and i remember clearly when they had the um, youths 
riots and demonstrations around in in the um, in the suburbs of of Paris, and you know with those demonstrations and and when I pointed that out, you know they would just sort of dismiss that as you know this is it's it has nothing to do with race, it has nothing to do with color, um, it's all about culture, as you know the French would say. You know, if you're the right, you have the right culture, you're French or you're not French. So it's it's sort of, um, you know, just the whole category of race and ethnicity does not translate in many parts of Europe. In fact, and I believe it was, it's in Sweden where the word for race actually is synonymous with the word for discrimination. Wow. So, okay. so, I mean, that that's a challenge. And you're, you know, so we did, you know, we use many different ways to unpack that. But I will say there are not that many organizations, Stephanie, that actually do go deep in addressing issues of race in many countries, like in, in Europe in particular, because of data issues. UK, right. yes, but not elsewhere. Now, if we fast forward to today, and, and so, yeah, they saw me, and I, I think I shared this in the case study, that when I, you know, when they talk to me, right, there's the the, the Europeans and particularly the French, when they talked to me, they saw me as as Indian because I am of Indian origin, and they embraced me and they shared all kinds of things, some some stuff which was not very complimentary to Americans. But when it came to issues of diversity, they their guard went down and they saw me as American. And this was, you know, this is just an, a U.S. thing. You know, it, it's irrelevant in our country. You know, see him. And the other, the interesting thing is there's a lot more intermarriage in in parts of Europe, in France, for instance, between right. blacks and whites. So that becomes sort of a data point for them to talk about the fact that, you know, it's it's an integrated society. For right, right. So right. fast forward to today, to be honest, I have a lot of hope for what's to come in the U.S. Yeah, um, I think just looking at the demographics of the demonstrators um, and the allies that are there and the young generation, I'm very hopeful right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. not the same globally. It is a movement. I think there are people that are demonstrating, you know, in parts in all parts of Europe, for instance. But I'm not sure that that's being translated within organizations. I think there's still compartmentalization between public and private. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, they're doing this, you know, demonstration on the street, but as far as we're concerned, you know, as an organization. So I'm not sure how and what's going to change that. It has right. to change because it is going to spill over into, into you know, organizations. But I'm, I'm watching to see, you know, how organizations start now addressing issues of of color race you know underrepresented populations within their organizations but um it's it's really helpful to hear and i know the points that you're making around data privacy it's as a researcher this is not um an area doing research in europe is is not easy uh particularly as somebody who studies diversity and inclusion i'm just not going to get the data that i want to get i can certainly get data on gender but the issues that I'm interested in aren't always about gender, right? right? And, and so I think about even now as we're obviously living under the the other pandemic, right? So not just the racism pandemic, but certainly the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic. Um, I've seen a number of papers put out in the UK where they're, uh, I, they refer B-A-M-E. I'm not sure if right. I pronounce BAME, but yeah, B-A-M-E. BAME. Yeah. 
is the is the acronym for Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic, I believe, right. yeah. um, individuals in society in the UK. And so I see in the UK, um, you know, papers that are suggesting that there's inequity in terms of who has to work and, and who's being negatively affected by the disease. Right. So I think in the UK, their census, I think, comes out, if I'm not mistaken, next year, they're going to have their next census. And the predictions are that, you know, about 20 to 25 of the percent of the population is going to be identified as BAME, which is a massive number, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in the UK, organizations are definitely addressing these issues. In fact, I was talking to an organization today, which is, you know, a 350-year UK-based organization. And they were talking about how they're having these, you know, town halls with the CEO on race and then asking each of their leaders and each of their lines of business to have these conversations as well. Right. So, and they're, and they're not jumping to action. They're doing these listening sessions. Mm -hmm. So they really want to hear people's experiences and be able to internalize them. So I'm thinking that, you know, I mean, it's picking up there. Now, Sodexo, um, I know that this morning, one of the leaders was actually doing a listening session talking about issues of race. And, you know, they've had, you know, several anti-racism webinars, history of race in the U.S., um, leaders talking about making themselves vulnerable and talking about their own blind spots. So I, you know, organizations are beginning to have these conversations mm -hmm. globally as well, but I right. don't think in, you know, in all parts of the world, I think we still have a ways to go there. Um, okay, so. excellent. So let's talk a, a bit about the work that has been done, needs to be done. I will tell you, I've taken a very crude cut of organizations when uh, people who have interviewed me have said, you know, is this, is it, are these statements, these CEO statements going to work? Uh -huh. Is diversity training going to work? And you may not agree with my categories, and certainly we can leave this open for discussion, but I've given three categories of, of, of companies. Um, I will call the first group the veterans. That's a, That's a company that for decades has had policies and practices in place to not only just manage diversity broadly, but also specific to issues around race and culture mm -hmm. and ethnicity. I call those the veterans. The, the second group I refer to as the aspirants, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the uh, companies that perhaps in the last decade or so have started to have a conversation about diversity, much of that conversation might be about gender. Um, I think of a lot of the tech companies in Silicon Valley, that's where they started. And certainly it was because there was heightened attention to gender uh, discrimination and sexual harassment. Um, and then the last group, I talk about these as the sideliners, right? And the sideliners are the, the companies that are really maybe tiptoeing around a conversation about diversity and inclusion. Uh, some are paying attention, um, some are less aware. Um, and I think when I think about all these companies that have put out these statements around Black Lives Matter and let's get rid of systemic uh, injustice, I've seen companies that fall into each of those three categories put out these statements. What was so the second I, What was the, the second, second? The aspirants, like aspiring aspirants. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I call it the veterans, the aspirants, and the sideliners, like people who are sitting on the sideline just watching mm. everybody else play the game. 
I'm most hopeful about the veterans. I'm most hopeful about companies like Sodexo and your capacity that your com former company's capacity to actually begin to create structures and policies and affect change. I'm not as um, I'm not as hopeful about the sideliners who haven't. Maybe they have a diversity officer. Maybe they don't have a diversity officer. Maybe if they have a diversity officer, the diversity officer has no resources. So that said, can you talk a little bit about um, where does one company start if it for certainly does not have a lot of a, a huge platform around diversity and inclusion? Where would they start? And then let's talk about the companies that have already been doing the work, maybe the veterans, if we take those two classes, sure. what, what do they need to do from your perspective? So I think if you talk about the the aspirants, right? So those that have, you know, either just starting or I think there is a burning platform, Stephanie. I mean, this is the burning platform. I mean, I don't think that folks can be your sideliners anymore. I just, you know, it's just not in this day and age, in this country in particular, um, I, you know, I just don't think they can afford to be. So I think it's the aspirants that are stepping up and I'm seeing, so I'm getting a lot of calls, you know, leaders, CEOs struggling. I mean, <laughs> people saying to me, you know, I had heard these stories, but I'm just beginning to realize what my privilege looks like. Now, you know, I'm not sure where they've been, but um, but you know, at least there is some realization that that they, you know, something that's kind of woke in them that they're beginning to kind of, you know, get the messages, right? Um, so I, you know, to me, it really in terms of so that to me is a burning platform. In terms of starting. I do think the starting point needs to be to call out and address race. Now, mm -hmm. even companies like Sodexo that did a lot of work over, over the years, there's always been this kind of reluctance to call out race, right? So it's always been, you know, diversity. It's about everyone, you know, let's not leave any, anyone behind. We talk about belonging. We talk about inclusion, which is great because that's the end goal. But in order to get there, you've got to, you know, you've got to, you know, call a spade a spade. I mean, there are issues of institutional racism. I think that this moment is providing the platform to actually name it what it is mm -hmm. and address it for what it is, rather than wrap it in this pretty wrapper that becomes sort of palatable mm -hmm. to, you know, to the privileged and palatable to the, you know, dominant group and, you know, yeah. the oppressors. So I think it's, it's, I think for the first, so I think it's really the starting point is really to, to acknowledge that there is an issue and let's just have a dialogue about race. And even veterans have not really done that in the same way. Right. We've sort of come to it in a different way. And along the way, kind of had the conversations about race, but now is the time to just put it on the table, have the conversation, have listening sessions, you know, without jumping to immediate action. Because part of this is just, you know, you know, being able to hold the space for some safe dialogue and to be able to listen. And then from there, so that to me, that's the starting point, you know, right. to do that and raise the awareness within your organization. 
um, about issues of race. So broad, you know, not just about trainings, but, you know, have, you know, listening sessions and be able to talk about it, have facilitated dialogue on the topic. And then from there, I would say, you know, moving on to come putting in place the initiatives that need to to you know occur in the employee life cycle to ensure that bias conscious and unconscious and it's not just unconscious it's both conscious and unconscious bias do not you know impact employee decisions so you know at every point of the life cycle recruiting can you give, mm-hmm. can you give a couple sure. of examples at recruiting and promotion for example sure. i think people uh-huh. are generally interested in those sure. stages yeah yeah yes. Absolutely. So I think if you unpack the whole sort of recruiting process, right, it goes from, you know, sourcing to your phone screening or resume screening, phone screening, you know, forwarding on the resumes by the the recruiters to the hiring manager and then the final hiring decision. And I think every single step in that process needs to be examined for bias and mitigated by putting in place initiatives to to not allow that bias to seep into decisions. So what that looks like is maybe incentives for recruiters, first of all, targets for recruiters to say, you have to present a diverse candidate slate to the hiring manager because the hiring manager can't hire um, unless there's a diverse candidate slate. So to, to have that as a target, 50% of your slate has to be women and or minorities, however you define that within your context. Um, and then putting some accountability around it, because just having the targets is not enough. The recruiters have to have accountability, and a part of their um, variable compensation should be linked to that to those targets, so that you know we're clear that we are presenting a qualified, diverse candidate slate to the hiring manager. Um, I then think that you know, it, as I said, each point needs to be examined. But one of the other things that you know we've done is for the hiring manager. Well, to provide you know unconscious bias training to recruiters and hiring managers. Now, unconscious bias training it's in itself is not that effective, but I do think it's one tool to raise awareness along with other processes and policies, so that you know you can mitigate bias. So I think it you know it's a holistic approach to it, but. For the hiring manager, for instance, having some you know targets there in terms of and scrutinizing the hiring decision. So at Sodexo, we actually had a review panel, and the review panel looked at every hiring decision, looked at who were the candidates that were sourced, what was the candidate slate that was you know for who were the finalists forwarded, what was the candidate slate, and then who did the hiring manager hire and really scrutinizes that whole process. So it's not just the hiring manager and also having a a diverse uh, interview panel. So I would say, you know, targets and incentives for recruiters, um, diverse recruiting uh, interview panel, targets for hiring managers. And we actually, you know, at Sodexo and many companies do this, link, you know, those targets to um, incentive compensation, to variable compensation, which we did as well. Globally, Sodexo had a target of, you know, all candidate slates for certain senior level positions had to have 50% women. 50%? So, yeah, wow. 50% women in the candidate slate. Yeah. In the candidate slate. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and, 40, and so the target was 40% women by 2025. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and I last I saw was in senior leadership ranks was the 34%. So, you know, inching up there. So I think that's sort of in the in the recruiting bucket. In the promotion, I think it's the same thing. I think, you know, I mean, looking at using a DNI lens to look at succession planning discussions, to look at, you know, I mean, I think all too often these discussions happen in, in a vacuum or unconscious bias comes into the discussion, but also having objectives for, so for instance, globally at Sodexo, the senior executives have a target of um, ensuring that a certain percentage of their successors are women or other underrepresented groups. So, you know, ensuring that managers are held accountable for developing that talent, for retaining that talent, and then putting in place initiatives to advance, you know, women and other underrepresented groups. So, you know, women and minorities in the U.S. It's, it's not about fixing, you know, minorities or fixing women. It's not that they necessarily need more skills. It is about making them visible to the organization. It is about getting them, you know, sponsors and mentors so that they can, you know, the organization can see this talent and has someone advocating for them. You know, for decades, Absolutely. we've had men who informally sponsored other men, for instance, you know, in a very, um, so I think, you know, it, we just need to formalize these initiatives to kind of make sure that everyone has access to sponsors or mentors. So those would be so, some of the initiatives. Yeah. I'm now going to ask you the question that I'm asked most frequently, and I am uh -huh. certain you have been answered this, asked this question frequently, and that is what role does merit play in this conversation? So mm -hmm. when we start talking about making people visible and diversity and inclusion, is that a conversation that's aside from a conversation about merit? Do we just sort of throw that out the window or, or how do you relate these two ideologies, if at all? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a <laughs> that's always an interesting conversation, right? So at the end of the day, and this is where it's sort of a, uh, you know, important distinction and sort of a tricky one, because at the end of the day, we want to hire the best qualified candidate. That's really the ultimate goal. But the way I look at it is if you have two candidates and the two candidates each have 90 percent, um, you know, in terms of this is the threshold is 90 percent. and Each of the two candidates has 90 percent of whatever is needed. One is a male, the other is a female. Then you start looking at those things that differentiate the two candidates. And one of the things in favor of the woman is you don't have that many women in your organization or your team. You know you need that diversity of thought within the organization in order to be the best organization, most productive. So you give that certain additional weight to that woman. We're not talking about, you know, anything that is sort of that she's not qualified. It's It has nothing to do. It's basically looking at that threshold of uh, you know, of qualifications. And so, so I see it, I mean, I don't see the two being at odds with each other. Uh, so, so many companies right now have big plans, aspirational. And if I can just, perhaps. Stephanie, can I just add one more thing to that? Yeah, sure, it, also it also depends on how you define as what the criteria are for a position, right? Yeah. And the criteria for a position 
includes, you know, my life experiences. So let's not yeah. shortchange that. So right, right, Absolutely. That Absolutely. Um, so so many companies. I was just talking to a chief diversity officer the other day. She's been in her company for two decades, and she has gotten a, a number of cold calls from a lot of companies that are looking to steal her away. Because apparently, oh, there's yeah. a plethora of chief diversity. I'm sure they're trying to pull you out of. Uh, what do you, you? I think you refer to it. I'm done. Retirement. <laughs> retirement. So there are all these open positions for diversity right. leaders. Um, what's the value of a diversity officer, or what's the potential value that a diversity leader could bring? Uh, to the company. I think we all realize you can't just take one person and make them the figurehead and, 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 and leave it at that. But what can we be hopeful for that a chief diversity officer might bring to the table that might help us uh, to move forward as a company broadly on diversity, uh, broadly on issues of diversity inclusion, but I think also on issues of uh, racial injustice and racial equity? Yeah, so I think, you know, I mean, so this almost relates back to the question you asked about what veteran companies can do, right? And one of the things that concerns me, Stephanie, is that as companies start changing their cultures um, and become more inclusive, you know, or see themselves as more inclusive, they start feeling that now, you know, diversity is part of our DNA. We can integrate it into everything we, we do, and we don't need to really call it out. So we don't need, you know, performance objective around diversity. We don't need somebody you know, responsible for diversity. And I think that's a really slippery slope because just as easily as, you know, you gain this traction, you can lose it. So I think it gives a false sense of, you know, sort of comfort to say that now it's part of our DNA and integrated. And I mean, I, I think you really have to examine yourself and make sure that that is actually the case. So having said that, I think there is, you know, not just today, I think there's tremendous value to a chief diversity officer, really being able to engage uh, cultural transformation in the organization. It's somebody who, you know, has this lens that they bring to the conversation that, you know, others may not see. Now we talk about white privilege and, you know, folks are saying, well, I really didn't ever know, right? So the, the role of the chief diversity officer is to, you know, to be that person that, you know, calls out some of these things. Um, and you know, basically is, is sort of, you know, um, spurs the organization on to take action. Now, is it entirely the role of the chief diversity officer? Obviously not. I think the role of the chief diversity officer is to strategically seed allies, to change people's mindsets. So it's not coming from his or her or their voice, but is coming, you know, from change agents within the organization. You know, I, I think that there's, you know, today, of course, there's tremendous, tremendous value and importance, but it's not just a symbolic thing. I think there's true value to the business. And, and I'll say that, you know, you know, Michelle hired me, right, in 2002. And, you know, he took, quotes and quotes a bit of a risk because this was an African-American uh, a lawsuit filed by African-American managers. I'm not African-American, um, mm -hmm. you know, and to, to hire somebody that they may not identify as being an ally to them was a big risk that, that he took. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that 
So it doesn't matter what the race or gender is of the person, but I think what is really important is the ability to listen, to make yourself vulnerable, to build these strong partnerships, and to not believe that you know when you know you know everything because um, you know I think it's important to to be able to hold a space for the voice of employee. So um, I don't know. Did I answer your question yes. in terms of the value? Yeah, I would just say that beyond the, just the current situation and what's you know happening in terms of Black Lives Matter and addressing issues of race, which I think is critical. I think there's also this huge benefit that the business can have, you know, so there's a massive benefit to the business and the brand if it's done right. And and we know that, you know, addressing issues in the community is absolutely, you know, it's about purpose-driven leadership today. So it has to be, you know, it has to be. Sorry, go ahead. So, no, if I might add, um, I think it's really important that companies show the value for diversity by ensuring that diversity leaders, chief diversity officers have budgets because oh, yeah. if they're supposed to be accessing allies and many of them are outside. I get contacted all the time by companies who want me to give a talk or want me to yep. be on some external council. They need the resources in order to do this work and many don't have them at all. And they're being asked to, I think, take on uh, a huge issue without sufficient resources. So I'm, I'm going to add that to the conversation. Absolutely. Sure they have a substantial budget that matches the ask of them. Um, I think sometimes we just don't treat uh, the diversity office like a business unit and business units need budgets to function. And, and I think we certainly need more of that. What would you and say? The positioning, I would agree. And the positioning too, Stephanie, you know, where this position reports to, you know, yeah. To have somebody in that role reporting, you know, like five levels down from the CEO, I mean, just it makes no sense because this is a strategic role. It's a role of influencing. It's a role of partnering with leaders and it needs to be positioned as such yeah. because otherwise it, you know, is not effective. So here's my last question to you, uh -huh. and it's certainly a selfish one. Um, uh, so I have spent the last 14 years really trying to understand corporate diversity and inclusion initiatives. And so if anybody asks me a question around what should companies do, yeah. I can lay out um, I can lay out a lot of ideas because I've been blessed to have people like you on my side, willing to open your brains and your insights up to my curiosity. Um, what's interesting is all the work that educational institutions are trying mm -hmm. to do. So I think of my own institution, I think of academia as a whole. Um, Certainly, we have a very, there's a different model in academia. We have a, you know, governance structures where faculty have a, a lot of a say in terms of what happens, uh, but we also have an administrative structure and a student culture and student life and students who really want to be in an environment where they're, they, they have the same advantages that employees have. Um, can you, do you have any recommendations uh, to educational institutions, universities, and colleges as they're trying to also broaden their uh, expertise and their platforms around uh, diversity, inclusion, and systemic racism? What, do you, what are your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I think that's a really important question. You said there's a real plethora of chief diversity officers. And what I'm seeing is a lot of education institutions are hiring chief diversity officers. I think there was an yeah. announcement recently uh, Harvard finally hired a chief diversity mm -hmm. officer. So I think there's you know a lot of educational institutions that are realizing that they too need to you know address this topic in a more sort of you know sort of organized consistent systemic kind of manner and that somebody responsible for it might help to get them there. And, you know, many of them are reporting to the president, for instance, of the institution. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, again, this is, it is, it's a, it, it has to be a systemic solution. It has to be holistic. It has to, you know, I think education institutions have to address it at multiple levels, obviously in curricula, to make sure that that lens is in the curriculum. In role models that are faculty, right? And how many tenured faculty there are that are faculty of color versus not. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, you know, a key piece of it. Um, I think in the student body, but I think it's sort of, it's all interconnected, right? So as a student, yeah. I mean, my kids, when they were looking at, at universities, I mean, they turned down Ivy League, some, some Ivy League schools because they didn't see a reflection of themselves in those schools. Right. So that, for the millennials, I mean, that's an extremely important criteria today. But you can only get a, a diverse student body if you have those role models in the faculty, if they're curricula that reflect their life experiences and stories. So I think all this kind of, you know, knits together. And then, of course, in the administration. But I think, again, it's, you know, it's a system. You know, an academic institution is a system. And it needs to be addressed in a, in a holistic manner. But it does have to be role modeled and the commitment does have to come from the top. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's different structures in politics and in academic institutions. But, uh, you know, I, but I, I mean, I personally think that the benefit, you know, to the brand is incredible. I mean, yeah. you know, to yeah. be known as an organization that really holds up, that's held up as a you know, beacon for race relations, for diversity and inclusion is going to be a magnet for future student enrollment. It's just going to happen. So, so that's, uh, <laughs> so you know this stuff better than I do. <laughs> but it's great coming from you, Rohini. It's really great coming from you. Uh, so final words, what um, would you like, uh, in different people I think, um, are going to certainly enjoy hearing uh, your perspective, certainly people who you would consider colleagues, people who are professors at other institutions, my students will be watching this video. Um, obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about the current times we're facing, I call them as many scholars have called them two global pandemics, one of COVID-19, the coronavirus, and the other called racism. And certainly these are contextual things that are happening here and now, but I think so many of the issues and challenges we've talked about transcend the current time. Um, so in closing, I just wanted to give you a chance to leave us with what your thoughts are today. Uh, maybe they're, they're what your same thoughts were five years ago. Um, go ahead. Yeah, so I think I'm more hopeful today than I have ever been. I'm more hopeful because of the demographics that I see amongst the movement and the demonstrations. I'm more hopeful because of the young population 
you know, who are taking a stand. And, you know, for them, this is about purpose. It's about values. It's not just about business case. So I think that's sort of a pivot that organizations are going to have to make. You know, we've all been focused on the business case. And I think the pivot is going to be, this is, you know, who we are and it's part of our values. So I'm extremely hopeful. And I think that if we just look at the movement globally, and if we look at who's participating, these are change agents. I think everyone, it doesn't, Yes, it comes from the top, but I think it, you know, this seed change can happen at all levels. So I'm really hopeful that, you know, folks, wherever they are, will kind of look within and see how they've, you know, the role that they play in bringing about some change and addressing racism in this country and, and more broadly, diversity, equity, and inclusion globally. Excellent. Well said. Dr. Rohini Anand, thank you again for allowing me to lean on you whenever I have been curious and certainly for your willingness and your generosity in sharing your expertise and your insights with a broader audience. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Dr. Spreary. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.